This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that each of us here would see Christ clearly. And seeing him clearly that we would love him and loving him that we would worship him. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I want to begin this morning by talking about my favorite advertising campaign. I'm a pastor, not a marketing expert, but I can say with at least some degree of confidence that between the years 2006 and 2016, the world witnessed the golden age of commercials. And the commercials that I'm referring to, of course, are the ones that were selling Dos Equis beer. Now, you don't have to enjoy the taste of the crisp Mexican lager to appreciate the genius of the Dos Equis ads. Ads starring a handsome, bearded man, well-seasoned by many years and profound experiences. In these commercials, the narrator describes this man in some outlandish ways. Here are some of the greatest hits as far as I'm concerned. The police often question him just because they find him interesting. His organ donation card also lists his beard. He's the only man to ever ace a Rorschach test. When in Rome, they do as he does. He is the most interesting man in the world. In some of the commercials, the Dos Equis man would even drop words of wisdom. Take, for example, his advice on careers. He said this, find out what it is in life that you don't do well and then don't do that thing. Or take this, his advice on rollerblades. About this activity, he simply says, no. I'm not sure if it's a parable, but I do think it's probably pretty wise. And as the narrator testifies to this man's greatness, we bear witness to him doing superhuman feats, surfing massive waves, rescuing bears from bear traps, arm wrestling large men. And as I was reading the first few chapters of Luke's gospel this week, preparing for the sermon, stories about the virgin birth, the story about 12-year-old boy Jesus holding court with with Israel's top scholars in the temple, about Jesus' extreme wilderness adventure where he spent 40 days without food in the desert defeating the devil, I couldn't help but imagine Jesus as the star of one of these commercials. Luke really wants us in the gospel to see just how fascinating Jesus is. Now, he's not the first person to say this, but in his book, Dominion, the historian Tom Holland makes the case that Jesus is the most important and most influential human who has ever lived. He argues that no person has done more to shape the contours of human history or our sense of right and wrong No one has inspired more art or captured more hearts than Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus really is the most interesting man in the world. <clears throat> and my goal this morning is to help us understand why. Why has Jesus of Nazareth captivated the imagination of humans for over 2,000 years? And I think the answer to that question is found in Luke chapter 4. If we get this scene of Jesus in the synagogue, we will get Jesus. And as we turn our attention to the gospel reading this morning, we see in verse 14 that Jesus has just returned to Galilee from his wilderness adventure. And he's teaching in the synagogues around the region, and he's beginning to develop a following. Word has gotten out about this man. Jesus has become the most interesting man in Galilee. In verse 16, Luke tells us that Jesus makes his way back to his hometown, his hometown of Nazareth. And up until this point in the Gospel of Luke, time is absolutely flying. In the first three chapters, we cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life. But in this passage, in the synagogue, time slows down. It tells us that what happens here, what happens in this synagogue, is pivotal. If we press our noses up against this passage, we will see Jesus clearly. Now, to help us visualize this scene, I want to say a little bit about synagogues in the first century. The synagogue was different from the temple in Jerusalem, where priests would sacrifice animals. Synagogue, the Greek word, just means to gather together. And so a synagogue was a building that was a gathering place. Every town with more than 10 males who were older than 13 was eligible to have a synagogue if they could afford building one. So the region of Galilee was, was dotted with synagogues. They were all over the place. And from excavations of first century synagogues in the region, we know that the synagogues weren't huge buildings. Uh, one in particular was around 26 by 30 feet. And so that means the synagogue would have fit in this space right here, if you can kind of imagine it. Not very large, but just large enough to accommodate the people in the community. They were built of large stones, oftentimes limestone, because that was abundant in the area. And the interior walls of the synagogue were lined with terraced seating. So you could pack a lot of people in there and everyone could hear and see with a good view. The synagogues were the center of local Jewish life. Of course, it was the gathering place for worship, but these buildings also functioned as a community and a civic center. It was a schoolhouse. That's where kids learned how to read. That's where they learned Torah. They would spend time learning uh, during the week. It was also a place for meals, and even sometimes the synagogue functioned as a courtroom. So what that means is Jesus would have spent a lot of time growing up in this synagogue. It was kind of like a home church. Jesus practically grew up in this building around these people. Their eyes would have been on him his entire life. Now, we don't know much about the first century liturgical practices of the synagogue, but what scholars do know aligns with the passage before us this morning. During worship, scrolls would be brought out from a chest that held them. The scriptures would be read aloud by members of the community, just like we do in our worship. But unlike our worship, there's not a set lectionary. That means... Uh, we don't really know exactly how they would pick the passages to be read from the scriptures. Perhaps the reader would select it. We're not really sure. 
And they didn't just have one preacher either. Instead, a respected voice from among the community would stand up and teach on the scriptures. Sometimes this would be arranged in advance, but not always. Now, with all of this in mind, let's jump back into the gospel passage. In verse 16, we find Jesus, and he's in his second home, in the synagogue in Nazareth, and it's the Sabbath. God's people have gathered together for prayer and worship. And at the appropriate time, Jesus stands up from his seat along the wall, and a scroll is handed to him. As Jesus unrolls the scroll, the people are staring in anticipation, waiting to see what he's going to read and what he's going to say. And as you imagine Jesus unrolling this scroll of the prophet Isaiah, I want you to remember that there was no prescribed passage. That means Jesus chose just this passage for just this moment. This is the passage that would set the stage for everything else that Jesus would say and do. And it's the book of Isaiah. And if you know anything about this book, it's huge. And it has so many amazing passages that Jesus could have selected. He unrolls the scroll and he skips right past Isaiah 11 and that amazing vision of cosmic peace where the wolf is lying down with the lamb. He skips past Isaiah 42 and the vision of God's servant who is going to be a light to all of the nations. He even skips past Isaiah 52 and 53 the amazing passage of the suffering servant who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus picks Isaiah 61. In verse 17, we read that Jesus unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to teach. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then, this isn't in the scripture, but I'm pretty sure that it happened, he dropped the mic. (laughs) It's the ultimate mic drop moment right here. Everyone was amazed at what they just witnessed. It's a stunning moment in the synagogue. Now, next week, Father Jonathan's going to pick up on the rest of this story, and we're going to look at how the audience responds to this first sermon of Jesus. This morning, I just want to unpack what he's saying here and what that means for us. So what is Jesus saying? What is he claiming? Well, Jesus is telling us exactly who he is. Isaiah 61 functions like the thesis statement of Jesus's life. Right up front, Jesus is saying, this is my purpose. I am the one in whom all of God's promises are coming true. And so much could be said about Jesus's passage that he selects and about his sermon, but I want to highlight just three themes. From this passage, we see three things that characterize the message 
and the ministry of Jesus. We see bringing good news to the poor, restoring sight to the blind, and liberating the captives. On one level, each of these could be understood metaphorically. Jesus came to save those who cannot see the truth and the beauty of God because they are slaves to sin and the devil. And while this is completely true, it is a grave mistake to simply spiritualize Jesus' vision of salvation here. Jesus came to deal with sin, and this includes healing real bodies, fixing broken systems, and freeing actual slaves. As we sang just a moment ago, he came to ransom, to heal, to restore, and to forgive. This tells us that Jesus cares about personal salvation and what we might call today social justice. And if you read the Gospels, there's simply no getting around this fact. That's why, for example, a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7, when John the Baptist is trying to figure out if Jesus is the real deal, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for another? Are you the Messiah? Are you actually the Son of God? And listen to what Jesus says. He doesn't say, go and tell John that I have invited people into a personal relationship with me. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the poor have good news brought to them. By selecting Isaiah 61 as his thesis statement, Jesus tells us that his mission is more than just evangelism and more than substitutionary atonement, although it includes both of these things. Jesus' mission is to bind up all that sin has broken. And he means this in the most holistic way that you could possibly imagine. And so if you're a Christian and you're hearing this this morning, I think this should get us thinking. If this is how Jesus describes the good news and the kingdom of God, is my view of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus big enough? And as a church, I think we should ask a similar question. Are we embracing the whole gospel or are there some holes in how we live it out here in Pittsburgh? Now, if we take a second pass over the passage, I think we'll see that what Jesus doesn't say is as important as what he does say. And if you look carefully and compare the quote from the Gospel of Luke and uh, the passage of Isaiah, you'll see that as Jesus is reading Isaiah, he stops just short of that really important bit about the day of God's vengeance in the second half of verse 2. Why does Jesus stop here? Well, I don't think it's because Jesus is shy about God's vengeance. I don't think it's because he thinks that judgment for sin isn't coming. I think Jesus stops here because he's going to deal with God's vengeance for us. How? How is he going to do this? Well, if you keep reading Luke's gospel, you'll see just how quickly Jesus goes from being the most interesting man in Galilee to a person of interest to both the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Jesus was so full of grace and so full of truth 
His message and ministry were so revolutionary, so threatening, that the world simply couldn't handle it. And so he was handed over by his own people and executed by his oppressors. And on that Roman cross outside of Jerusalem, Jesus deals with God's vengeance. So what does this mean? It means that through his death, Jesus untangles the knot of sin that each one of us have tied. It means that through his resurrection, Jesus is beginning to stitch the world back together again. This is the great project that Jesus will complete when he comes again. Now I want to bring this all together for us and consider for a moment what this passage, what this message that Jesus preached means for us today. This passage answers a question and it asks a question. The most important question that this story answers is this. How did Jesus understand himself? Who did Jesus think that he was? The passage is very clear. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the Lord who has come to fix all that is broken. That's how Jesus understands himself. And the question, uh, the question the story raises is also a very important one. And it's a question directed to each one of us hearing this this morning. Given what you've seen and heard, given what Jesus claims here, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? This is the most important question that any of us will ever answer. Now, in his great book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis tells us that to this question, there are only three possible answers. When we consider all of the things that Jesus said and did, who he claimed to be, Jesus is either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. The option of him being just a great teacher or just an interesting man simply are not on the table. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher or the most interesting man in the world. He has not left that, op- that open to us. He did not intend to. So this is what Lewis is saying. He's saying, if you don't believe the things that Jesus said were true, the things that he claimed about himself, you might find him to be very interesting. But if you think he's either a liar or a lunatic, you should take him about as seriously as you take the Dos Equis guy. But, but if Jesus is who he says he is, not just the most interesting man in the world, but the Lord... The one who brings good news to the poor, who opens the eyes of the blind and sets the captives free. 
that means you should take him far more seriously. The only reasonable thing would be to fall at his feet and worship him. Let's pray. Father, again, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see that Jesus is Lord. That you would help us to see that clearly, what he has done for us. Pray that you would help us to fall at his feet and worship him. I pray these things in his name. Amen.